Welcome to episode 17 of The Foreign American, Becoming Better Global Citizens, where we introduce topics designed to help us think outside the bubble of the United States and enter into a conversation with the rest of the world. We are educators attempting to break free of the cocoon that keeps us from knowing, loving, and listening to our global neighbors. My name's Scott Bessenecker, and for the past 30 years, I've been helping to lead students into beautiful and broken places around the world. And I'm Sandra Maria Vanopsel. I'm the co-founder of Chasing Justice, which is a movement mobilizing people of faith to follow Jesus and live justly. And uh, I'm Andy Kim, and I help college students, faculty, and staff learn to love well and work well across differences. In this episode, we'll be exploring the topic of time. Time's a human construct, and how we think about the passage of time or about age is very much rooted in culture. How do those of us in the U.S., especially those who come from white culture, view being early or being late as compared with others who made up time zones? How are the way dates written uh, constructed? At what age does a person become old? Now, these are the sorts of things it'd be good to understand from a broader perspective than the little slice of humanity we occupy. And to kick things off, I'll start with a uh, easy and safe question. Am I old, you guys, from your perspective? Do you even know my age? (laughs) Just look at me. Am I old? Yes or no? I will not hate you for saying yes. It's okay. Go ahead, Andy. <laughs> well, this being a podcast, people can't see what you look like, Scott. So, um, yeah, you have just really great, not white hair. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I don't think you're that old. Come on, Andy. Um, I, I just turned 35 this weekend, and uh, I feel a little bit older. Um, but then I, I hung out on my birthday with some 70-year-olds. So I do think time is relative. Um, I think... I'm seen as old by a lot of people, so I don't know what that makes you, Scott. So, um. uh, Scott, you old? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You, you, uh, yes. I mean, I spend most of my time with people who are younger than me, even though I am no longer working in a college setting. But just as a as a pastor of a local church um, that is intergenerational, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, most of our congregation, a majority of it, is younger. Uh, than you probably because they're younger than me. So, <laughs> and you're older than me. So I would say, yes, you're old. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so I think the, the the fact that we have a problem maybe answering that or wondering how what we're saying could be felt or heard is because we're in a context where um, I truly don't believe we value um, age. Yeah. It's funny because when I was in my 20s, there was someone in our small group, in our house group, that was really, really old. And um, she's probably she was probably my age at that time. But like from my perspective, she was unhelpfully old. I don't know. That, that's maybe not fair to say. But yeah, I had this view of people my age when I was in my 20s. And of course our view of what's old changes every year, you know, as we age and our perspective on that sort of timeline 
shifts what constitutes being old, but old equaling unhelpful or out of touch and being in touch and being cool and being relevant, being of the highest value. Like in my 20s, someone my age was irrelevant, out of touch and old. Ruth has passed from this world uh, now, but uh, she at my age, when I was in my 20s, when she was my age, she was so out of touch. And the decor of her furniture and her clothing like just screamed, I'm out of touch. But I don't view myself like that. I don't view that way either. I think, I mean, you brought up a good point is what does old mean? I mean, to me, old is, has to do with age. Um, and my mother is in her mid seventies and she's, you know, raising grandchildren who are in their teens and, or a grandchild who's in, in her teens who lives in the house with her. And so she's on Instagram and she's on WhatsApp and she's, you know, following trends, she knows what's in style. And every time someone compliments me on my jewelry, my mother bought it for me. So I think, it, I think if what we're talking about is a state of being, um, then, then I wouldn't say you're old, but if what we're talking about is age, then, then, you know, for me, at least right now, <laughs> right now I'm in that age where people don't always know how old I am. And because I have two four-year-olds, they think I'm younger than I am because in my community, having children that are toddlers will put you in your like late twenties, early thirties, you know? So, you know, I'm in reference point. I'm like, it's weird because I have very young children. And so they can't figure out how old I am. And then on top of it, uh, you know, a lot of us come that come from cultures with a little bit more melanin, we we hide our age differently. <laughs> um, and then I have only gray hair on one side of my head. So if I want to be respected um, in certain spaces, I part my hair to that side. So all my gray mm-hmm. hair shows. And then if I want to be cool in some and younger in some places and spaces, I just part my hair the other way so that my gray hair is, is covered. <laughs> So I think I'm personally in an age where it's like, I, I, if it benefits me to be old, I want to be old. But if it doesn't benefit me to be old, then I don't want to be old. And what are those situations in you guys' experiences where, where it's beneficial to be old and, you know, not just seen as the um, hip old person, but like, maybe the stodgy old person like when is it okay to be out of touch and to wear sweaters that aren't cool and you know have that old man or old woman hat um and like it in it's very rare in white culture that that is um honored praised valued or sought after Mm. Yeah, I think I I have kind of a little bit of because I grew up in the United States, but in a Korean family and a Korean church, I feel a little bit conflicted because on one hand, I grew up where every adult you walk by, you're supposed to bow and you don't call them by their first name. You call them, you know, Elder Hong. I actually don't know any of my aunts and uncles 
first names. I only know them as aunt and um, I don't know any of the people at my church, the older Koreans, I just know them as elders. And I think something ingrains in you, this respect for elders and um, this kind of view to, you know, every New Year's Day, you bow to your elders and they give you wisdom and money. And so even if as a kid, you're just in it for the money, I think something does form in you where you appreciate the wisdom of those who've gone before you. And there's been moments in work settings where we get to meet uh, people who help found, uh, you know, major organizations and we would uh, hear their stories. And uh, I think there is something really cool about that and uh, something that maybe one day I can be one of those gray haired people telling my story and uh, there will be young people who would be interested in hearing more about me. Um, so that's like one side of me, but then uh, I was thinking about a few years ago when my brother was in the hospital and I had this really crazy experience where um, he was being visited by a bunch of doctors and they were older doctors. And I was like, oh man. And I just wanted a young doctor. And I, I, I thought about it, it was weird because I don't know why I just assumed a younger doctor would be smarter, maybe as up to date on the latest like medical developments. And then when this old, it was an old, it was a Catholic hospital. So it was old, looked like an Irish Catholic gentleman who walked in. I was like, oh man, this is like not gonna be a good doctor. I just want a young, hip, you know, med student who is, is recently in the book. So I feel a little bit torn in my, my cultural views of aging. Mm. I could totally see that. Uh, I, I haven't had that experience particularly with doctors, but I have had that experience in different settings um, where I felt like age was a, um, you know, was a negative thing or would be a detriment to the situation. Um, but I think we are kind of navigating two sets of values because in, in Latino culture, um, it, it's not only that it's a high power distance, you know, or kind of hierarchical culture where you value people who are older than you or in positions above you, but because time is viewed in such a way where, where past really matters, where history matters, where kind of like your experience and life lived matters, then you would want to have people in the room that um, have been through some things, you know, they've just because, you know, you've lived longer. So you've just experienced more. Um, and I remember when I was a part of a, of a church plant that was primarily college students and recent grads and, and, you know, from undergrad. And I was like the oldest woman in the church. And that was very scary for me because I was probably 30, one thirty, thirty-one, 31. Um, and I didn't have experience being married or raising children or in my career very long or, you know, maybe, you know, 10 years, you know, 10 years out. So I just felt like, what do I have to offer these young people of faith if I have not really lived life? And one of the reasons that we, that we're congregating and pastoring in the, in the church that I'm at now is because it is intergenerational. And that's very, very important to me. Like I remember one time having this conversation with my husband about the church we were at, where I said, what if, why, why can't we just import some old people here? <laughs> like we just didn't need to talk to another church within the, the denomination that has lots of old people in their churches and bring them here so that they can teach us um, and that they can share their stories and they can let us know what life is really like. 
And there, that, that value actually wasn't in the church, even though it was primarily people of color. And I think part of it was because um, probably our American U.S. culture had influenced us. But I also think it has something to do with the education level of the people that were there and the elitism they carried around education and knowledge. So I think there are multiple values that were at play kind of circling around each other. Because for me, experience equals wisdom, which would require not only age, but life lived in some way. Mm. So I don't think that someone who's, it's very hard for me, for example, to read blogs about parenting by people who are, um, who haven't lived, who just aren't older and who haven't lived very difficult things in their lives because I'm parenting and pastoring parents in a context of high trauma and I need real help, like not tips on you know, how to talk to your kid who wants to take the train from the other kid. But like, what, do you, how do you talk to your children in, about faith and, and death? Mm-hmm. And I think that requires both a lot of different values for me. So I, I think that age is a funny thing because it, it assumes um, it is integrated with other types of values, like what is more important and what do you think about more your past, your present or your future? I feel better. It's hard for me to imagine that there's a culture out there where, you know, I, I understand a teenager rejoicing at hitting 20 or, you know, you know, someone having a uh, set of gray hairs in a place when they're relatively young that they can use those gray hairs. But it's hard for me to imagine there's a culture where you don't experience midlife crisis does such a thing exist? I mean, have you guys seen cultures where someone doesn't feel sad that they've aged and maybe even feels like finally 50, I've been waiting for that? Or do all cultures lament aging? I, that's a hard question. I would imagine, I mean, I've never asked someone within a high power distance culture that values Mm -hmm. elders. Um, You know, are you just excited to be 50 now? Like we just don't talk about age that way. So um, I don't know. I would imagine that there is some kind of, um, achievement, you know, like, oh, finally, now I'm old enough to be respected. You know, like I'm old enough to be heard. Um, in some cultures, I imagine that's there, particularly in, in let's say, an African context or in a uh, Asian context, where where leaders particularly aren't given freedom or respect until they hit a certain age or experience. Uh, so I imagine that's there. I've never talked to anyone about it, but you know, um, I know that. We just had this conversation at a women's empowerment gathering uh, here in Chicago, and the women that spoke actually talked a lot about age because for women, um, and particularly I think in some some cultures, you have to be old enough to be heard and respected, but then you age out at a certain place because you need to be old enough to be heard and respected, but you can't be so old that you're unattractive or unpleasing to look at. 
um, or detached from culture. And this is, it's, I think age is also so engendered uh, vocationally that I think it's, I do think there are moments where I have talked to sisters who said, oh my, like I was happy when I got gray hair. I was like, finally, because I felt like students didn't really respect me for my age. Um, and I expected to be respected because I come from a culture where you would respect somebody who has more education, more authority, and more time on this earth than you do. Um, and but I, I looked and appeared younger than I, I think that I was. And so when I got gray hair, I was like, yeah, finally I have some gray hair. And then when it started taking over, I was like, oh no, let me add some pink to my hair. You know, like, <laughs> let me distract you from the top of my hair by putting you know colors on the bottom of my hair. Um, so I do think that as a woman, age is a is a strange thing around vo- gaining voice, credibility, um, and being heard. You have to have, and I've heard this from so many, particularly um, uh, East Asian women, where it's like, well, I'm petite and I look young and people think when I walk in the room, I'm there to help do something for them, but I'm actually the doctor, you know, <laughs> so, um, or I'm the the councilwoman, you know? And so I think that there's something about age that gains. I do think some of us, particularly women go, finally, I look and appear old enough to be heard and not treated like a child. Mm. Um, And then some of that just never goes away. I still, I mean, uh, emotionally get patted on the head by lots of uh, people that I am in ministry with. And they would never do that to a man who has my credentials or age or experience. So I do think there's an engendered experience, um, but I couldn't, I've never asked like a community of people that question. Mm. Yeah. It'd be interesting to do a, a bit of a uh, photo montage of female newscasters around the world and in which countries, a gray-haired female newscaster is most prevalent. Obviously, you know, in the West, we, we honored the gray hair male newscaster, but there are hardly any gray-haired female newscasters. And I think there is that engendered piece of, um, there, there's a kind of honor and respect for white hair on a guy, but a um, uh, looking askance at a gray-haired woman, except for Barbara Bush. Everyone loved Barbara Bush's white hair, but that was a that was a anomaly. I think what I'm I'm searching for is whether there's this prime meridian in regard to age. You know, the prime meridian, zero degrees latitude, is my view of time really anchored in my culture. And so that's provoking my question of how time is understood and even how past, present, future is understood from other perspectives, just so that I can have, um, I carry that prime meridian view inside myself as I travel or as I interact with people. What's it look like to blur that a little bit or not to, at least to be cognizant of it when interacting with people who may have very different understandings of time or present? 
wow, uh, you gave me a lot to think about there. Um, so I think it is interesting to think about all the aspects of time because when I would do, when I would be in spiritual direction um, in my early, you know, time on, on in ministry in my early mid, mid to late twenties, um, I would meet with my spiritual director and talk about specific things. And she would constantly say to me, well, that's because you're Latina and you're as concerned about the past as you are as the present and the future. Hmm. And so your, your, your present reality is rooted in those who have come before you and the things that have created um, the situation we're in now, for example, um, you know, I typically, when I am speaking at certain places well, actually, when I'm speaking, period, I typically introduce myself as the daughter of two immigrants. Um, and I tell a little bit about my experience because it's to place what I have to offer, what I've been through and what my family has been through is critical to who I've become. So therefore, I am only me because of what my grandparents, my parents, um, my grandparents and my parents and my community has invested into me. Um, and so I stand there as a part of a larger thing and anything I say comes from that social, um, you know, socioeconomic and cultural location. We all have that. So there was a Native American speaker at an event I was at who said, you know, we, we think where our feet stand. And I, you know, I just added, you know, I think that we think and we feel where our feet stand. Um, but it has to do with uh, not only our location as far as like, oh, I, I work in Chicago, but, and, you know, so therefore all the things that are happening in Chicago are shaping me, but also I stand here as a part of a legacy that has come before me. So I am, I feel what I feel and I think what I do because somebody influenced that. And those somebodies were my grandparents, my aunties, my uncles, my parents. Um, and that's why I am who I am. Hmm. And so I think, it, time has something to do with um, it's like your perspective of the present. I, that's what I could see if your perspective of the present from a native American or Lakota perspective is that it includes your grandparents and your grandchildren, including like those that are coming after you. It's because all of those things are connected. The past is um, important to the present, the present shaping the future. But so she said to me, the, the issue is though you're working in an environment that's that is present oriented, it's short-term oriented. Um, and so you're fighting your values, which are both past, what has happened to get us here and what legacy are we leaving for the future? But you're working in an environment that's only concerned with short-term results now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Report what's happening now. How many student conversions now? this three-year plan, you know, so it's very, um, um, not only present oriented, but defining present as very short-term oriented. So um, it's something that I think about a lot because when my, when I went through um, certification in cultural intelligence and CQ, one of the aspects or the cultural values is time orientation. And they, they, they talk about whether a culture is time oriented to be short-term or long-term. And that means that if you're a short-term culture, you're actually, you're valuing immediate outcomes. So it has little to do with like being on time or not coming to a meeting on time. It has to do with every, where you're valuing time is outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. And if you're long-term, um, 
oriented, then you're more worried about or more focused on the planning portion of it. And you could sacrifice short-term outcomes for the purpose of long-term benefit, long-term relationship, um, success later on. Um, and so I think that we, I mean, it's clear that we live in a short-term uh, culture in the U.S. because just because of how we care for our environment. I mean, that's very clear. Uh, so, and even conversations around culture and ethnicity and inclusion and diversity, they're very rarely about long-term benefits. They're almost always about some short-term outcome where a board member or some accrediting institution needs to have a certain level of diversity. So I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, it makes me think about um, my, uh, when my, my wife's uh, grandmother passed away, she had this old German cuckoo clock. And um, we like kind of got it to work, um, but it was crazy because it was like tick, 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 tick. And every second was like this banging sound. And I was like, how can somebody live with the clock every second going like tick, 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 tick. And then I, I started to realize that there's some clocks that have that really that second timer clicking. And maybe there was some mechanical reasons for it, but I feel like the kind of what you're saying, Sandra, it's like that reinforces that every second matters. And, and you're really aware of the seconds, which, you know, which is feels very much like this short term or your schedule every day, you got to follow the seconds, follow the schedule, follow the agenda. And I think about now we don't have cuckoo clocks anymore, but I have constant alerts on my phone. I have, I have to just, even as we've been having this conversation, I've had to like put my phone on do not disturb because even though I have it on silent, it's buzzing and bleeping and there is something interesting. Maybe this is a, almost a transcultural thing that's happening with our kind of technological culture where this Western short-term um, time-oriented bias is being imprinted in all of our technology now that's taking away my ability to think long-term, not just to think about this minute um, or what I have next on my agenda today, but what about in a year from now? What about two years from now? What do I want? How often do I have time to think about those long-term things for myself? my community so mm, that's interesting fascinating that the sound of a second hand or you know i think about swiss and german cultures being very much uh, those places that gave us clocks early clocks and i think you're right i think there's something beyond the mechanical tick that says we want to recognize time in this super incremental way and then, of course, a lot of those clocks, I'll bet the cuckoo clock made a noise every hour and some, some of them every half hour. Mm -hmm. It's like every 15 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was a different song every, you know. Well, both of you have brought up um, kind of ancestors. Let's talk about dead people a little bit here. Um, you know, we just had Memorial Day and in the U.S., it's very much focused on those who lost their lives in war. My experience with other cultures is like, there's sometimes like an ancestor's day or, you know, missionaries often viewed that as, ah, yikes, they're talking to dead people. They're probably talking to demons. And um, the, the connection between people and their dead ancestors is bad because they're gone. And there may be some things that have, traveled on, you know, recipes, whatever. 
but otherwise recognizing, interacting with, thinking about dead people outside of Memorial Day or dead people who, are, who died in a war becomes this odd thing. Memorial Day as a time to recognize our ancestors or think about our ancestors or tell stories about our ancestors uh, who weren't involved in war. Like that would be an interesting thing if you guys encountered a view of those who have passed away as you guys often straddle um, people in white communities and people in non-white communities, have you noticed a view of dead people or of ancestors that is different in those two worlds? Well, I, I definitely know for me, um, just in my own family, um, there's a, a fault line in terms of my Christian family members and those who are not Christian and um, what are our, our, to what extent do we want to honor Korean practices of visiting the ancestors' graves, um, putting out food, not just for the ancestors, but you put out food for other, I don't know, people in the afterlife, the, the workers of the, you know, of the tomb. Um, and uh, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate how the debate is often around, will you bow or will you not bow? Or what kind of specific ritual practices will be done um, versus to what extent do we want to honor the ancestors or remember them? Um, and so I think that's an important debate, both the ritual aspects, but also how do we appropriately honor? And I'm grateful for, to come from a culture where every year there's some uh, rhythm of remembering my grandparents. So like visiting their graves, so Christian and not. Um, all, we, we go back and we tell stories um, and we mark the time, actually. This has been five years after, you know. And so uh, it's definitely harder for me growing up in the States to, to practice some of those things. Um, and even probably this maybe youth culture, it's, you know, my brothers and I would complain, oh, we got to go to grandma's grave. You know, why we got to go on a Saturday or whatever. But as I've gotten older, I've seen how that practice has shaped me. And I think in a lot of other traditions where valuing your elders naturally translates into valuing your ancestors and honoring them. It is, again, it's sad how sometimes in the conversations in Christian communities, um, it kind of degenerates into ritual debates about bowing or other things like that. I definitely think people in the U.S. honor their ancestors on the birth date or the death date of their grandmother or grandfather. Um, for, for us, you know, a, a miscarriage of a child, you know, like I think we honor those who are dead, who have passed us as individuals. So I actually think that we do it in the U.S. through, through the lens of our ind individualistic value. I think that cultures that do it as a day, they're doing it as a collective. These are our ancestors, not this is my grandma, Maria, mi abuela, Clarita, mi abuela. They're doing it all together. So I, I don't actually, I think there are, there are differences in the way that we view death for sure. But I, I definitely think that Americans, you, people in the US have a culture of honoring ancestors. Um, I just think that we're not able to see them as a community. I think that we see them as individual people with individual things we'd like to say about them. Um, so I think it's, again, like those places where you can't look at, you can really look at one practice or one value um, apart from its intersection with other values. Um, I think a, a holiday like Dia de los Muertos for Mexico and some in Central America, it's a day where we honor, honor all who have passed. 
mm. um, because they have collectively influenced us. They are collectively a part of our community in the same way that we would honor all who have passed um, in war, you know, in, in the U.S. But again, our collective uh, lamenting and our collective grief is around nationalism and not around family, where our family grief is around individuals and not around a collective. So I think there are other values that are shaping some of what we do. And, and I think as far as what Andy shared, you know, I, yeah, there's definitely some, I mean, there are things that I would probably do in my family that other family members would not like for me to do around um, a day of the dead, for example, but we're in a Mexican community and that's where my children are being raised. And um I think there are a lot of really great things about Dia de los Muertos. And, and you know, that's why Coco was such a popular movie um, because there's some things that really, um, they, they resonate with our hearts about making time to, to be thankful for those who have passed before us um, and to know their stories. And sometimes even, you know, like in that movie to, to have a corrected story um, mm-hmm. because there's the story wasn't right. So um, I think that there are practices you can do, but then you can maybe be more creative about altering what you do in, in, in ways that, um, still maintain significance, but maybe don't make your entire family mad, you know? Um, wow. So. That's fascinating. It's true. As I think about, um, dates in the U S that are holidays that tend to memorialize, um, events or people in the past, they're pretty much all related to nation building rather than sharing this sort of collective story about our ancestry, quite apart from where they happen to land in America as in Thanksgiving or, you know, not connected to the American experience or experiment. Um, where is that place where you not just honor the individual who passed away, not just honor those who were part of establishing America, but the longer story of our people? That would be really fascinating to experience. It's it's just out of my construct. And and you know, uh, Willie Jennings in his book, uh, The Christian Imagination, he talks a lot about a theology of place and how for people that um, conquered the Americas, they lost that sense of place because they left a place to another place where they didn't really value the idea of pl- the idea of place. So they're not rooted. So, so then your faith there becomes very disembodied and kind of, you know, intellectual and emotional, but not embodied. And so I think those things also affect how we would see, um, you know, it's a bunch of people coming from another place and establishing themselves as a nation. So the only thing they, you know, it makes sense to me. It just, it makes perfect sense knowing our history and our country that for white Americans, that would be the, the, the narrative. Whereas I think for Latino Americans or Asian Americans or Native Americans, um, I, I think there is very much a, um, a wrestling with what about how I understand death and honoring and memorializing people. What about that for my culture is, um, 
can be retained while I inherit a faith that is so disembodied um, and, and located really in enlightenment, you know, like, which doesn't have some of those practices that are more embodied, like, uh, you know, putting up altars, for example. Um, but one other thing that's interesting, somebody said this about earlier, one of you said this about leaving flower or uh, going to grave sites. Like, I, mean, I don't know, people in the US leave flowers at grave sites. What, what's supposed to happen with those flowers? So I feel like I don't, if you want to leave a box of crackers or a piece of toast or, um, you know, a cake, um, I, I don't see the difference. I guess a part of it is we we have these weird, we have these weird ways in which we don't even understand the traditions we have in the US. So we would need to ask, why do we leave flowers on a grave site in the US? Why do we do that? Um, who's supposed to benefit from those flowers? And, and, and why waste the money? You know, like, uh, because a piece of bread is cheaper than a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> so we, we need to ask, like, what is the value there to understand? Like, does it matter if they're flowers or bread? What are we saying? And that there might be meaningful things that we can have discourse around. Um, but my guess is we're not even willing to have those because anything that's foreign or different than what we would do um, is suspect. Yeah, one of the one of the practices that we've been doing in university has been um, trying uh, to honor the First Nations of the land wherever we're having a meeting uh, or if we're holding a conference. Um, and this was uh, suggested by some of our Native ministry leaders and having done this now for the past few years and you know when we met in LA we um we took some time and to remember uh, the people of that land in Madison the Ho-Chunk people here in in my town we have the kind of Peoria Indians um and then the Illinois Confederation and the interesting thing about that practice it's a short thing sometimes it's five minutes 15 minutes um, before a three-day conference um I think as I've done it more and more it's helped me to look have different eyes as I think about a place and kind of what Sandra was saying about Willie Jennings. It's looking at this place, not just for my present needs. Like this is a road that I'm going to drive over to get to where I need to go for my meeting. Um, this actually is a place with houses and trees that existed before there were houses and trees here. There was something here before that that's bigger than me, that's larger than me. Um, and I think there was something powerful about that and that time once when time is not just seconds and minutes ticking away and agendas and tasks, we're forced to re remember that we're part of something bigger, bigger around the world and bigger going back thousands and thousands of years that we're just a small segment of it. And we would do well to remember that and to, to learn from those who've gone before us. Um, and so it's just really interesting how this conversation, I didn't expect how time would unlock just lots of different ways of seeing the world in new ways. And that practice, Andy, actually develops something in you that makes you a person that is, that could potentially be more effective in pursuing God's peace and justice in the world. Because if you were to think about who was on that road or in that building or at that grocery store before you got there, you wouldn't have the largest wave of gentrification in most of our major cities being amplified by church planting. You know, like you wouldn't have something like that because yeah. people would be thinking about who's there. So we oftentimes have people come into our neighborhood and say like, oh, there's no stores in this neighborhood. There's literally stores everywhere, um, <laughs> but it's not the kind of stores they want. Or if there's an old, if there's a vacant building, they don't ask the question, who was here before me? They ask, what could I do with that building? So it's a, it's a pragmatic question. 
but they, they don't ask who was here. What does it mean for me to step into this place? And what am I building with the people that are already here? So I think that in, in a view of time, a view of, of living that incorporates looking back to see who was there, um, all the way back to the native peoples of the land, um, and who was there, you know, previous, you know, kind of short, short time ago would allow us to ask the question, what, who was here and why are they no longer here? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for me to be a good steward of the space as someone that's coming in versus like, oh, there's a vacant building that's really cheap. And in between two really cool places, let's build a church there. You know, like, I think that, um, I think that we would be much more effective at what we do if we considered um, not just time as again, in it's, you know, I want to be on time or I need to be 10 minutes late or whatever that is, but um, also in the way that we orient our lives. So the first thing I think about when I think about time and place is I think about my own community that's, that has experienced so much gentrification and it has so much implications on us. And it's, if someone would have just asked who was here, that would have changed everything. I think I would have hoped that would have changed things. Mm. Wow. You, you guys are helping me to reconstruct my understanding of time and age. I, I am beginning to see time less as that sound that Andy described, the, the ticking I'm beginning to see time as story. My story, the story of my relatives, the story of my people, and the story of the land, and the story of the structures around me. Like time as story. Wow, mind blowing. I'd never thought about time as story. I've always thought about time as that sound of ticking. How will that? change my outlook to think about time as story instead of time as that slipping away ticking thing. Um, it's also helpful to think about geologic time. Then I don't feel so old. <laughs> yeah. And I think time as story and um, I think time and nature, I think is what we've also been talking about in the sense of um, we are not, uh, just because we can count time and measure time doesn't mean we're not actually a part of the natural order. And remembering that time is ultimately rooted in the movements of the sun and the moon um, and our presence on the shared earth. And we've talked a little bit about how, how short-term time orientation, Sandra brought up the great point, uh, is one of the reasons why we kind of treat our earth and, and deal with climate change in such a short, short-sighted way. But if we saw the connection between time and nature and the shared planet that we have, uh, we might act differently. Um, I was at a coffee shop a few, few weeks ago and I was talking to a guy and I don't know, somehow we got a topic of his fiance who lives in Chile. And then I was like, oh, it's great. Um, we're all in the same time zone. So it must be great to talk to her on the phone. And then he was like, um, actually it is, it's kind of hard because they have daylight savings time, but it's in reverse. So then they spring backwards and fall forwards. And my mind just exploded because it was like, Oh, Whoa. Like the Southern hemisphere is like the same earth, but like their sun and then their directions are different. Um, and I think it was the sense of, we share the same planet. We experience the sun differently. And so it, it was this, 
I, I still, it was just a crazy idea of that we share the planet, but we experience it differently. And so in some ways I feel that's a metaphor or a parable for how we all share this thing called time, um, but we experience it in different ways, but we really, there's some things that we all share together. And that's really hard to do, Andy, when you're, when, when our perspective of time is more about controlling time, mm. utilizing time, making the most of time yeah. versus, um, versus really, time. yeah, versus experiencing it. So like as, as a mom of two, four-year-olds, you know, like ex- imagine me now trying to tell them they have to go to bed when it's bedtime because the sun is not down. Mm. So, so they say to me like, mama, it's not nighttime. You know, it's not dark out. I'm like, I know, but it's already eight o'clock. They're like, but it's not dark out. So I'm like, I, I'm like arguing the four-year-old who's got a really good point. It's not dark out. You know, like, so I had to buy one of those blackout curtains for my kids' <laughs> rooms. So they wouldn't, so what I do is I go into their rooms and I shut all the curtains, turn on the nightlight and like make it dark in there for them, even though the rest of the house is light so that they can feel that it's time to go to bed. Mm. And it's really operating out of a really an American way of living because in in Argentina when we go visit my family members nobody puts their kids to bed when it's because it's bedtime your kids go to bed when when the sun goes down and everybody goes inside you know like and in the summertime where whenever the summertime is whether it's in December or um or July you stay up later you have longer days because that's what the earth is telling you to do. And then yeah. in the summer, in the winter time, you have shorter days. So I think that we're so busy controlling time. And I think as parents, we probably, uh, when you're parenting small kids and they're asking those questions, it's like, you're, you're actually wondering, why am I putting them to bed? But I'm also married to a white guy from Wisconsin. So he's like, no, their bedtime is 7.30 period, you know? So uh, we're trying to navigate some of that. And also we want to actually talk to each other. But I think that with small children, they ask the questions we should all be asking. Like, why are we doing that? Why are we staying up later when the sun has already gone down? Why are we not sleeping? Um, and we're all on our, you know, smartphones and on our, Netflix when we all should be sleeping so our body's getting rest so we're prepared for the next day. Um, but we we really are trying to maximize, get the most of, control, um, make more time, you know. Um, and yeah. so I think, anyway, I think that that it's hard to think about time the way we're talking about it when everything around you is going against that. Yeah. And I just think about techno culture and this idea of, I mean, idea of productivity and the four, you know, four hour work week and just all these weird things that these CEOs are doing. So I know the Twitter Jack guy, he's been bragging about how he only eats a meal a day and he only drinks water on weekends because he wants to maximize time. If you're eating, you're not doing stuff and, and trying to engineer your bodies and, and to do all these things to sleep less, like Elon Musk famously is is trying to just sleep as little as possible and all these things. And so it is this way that our techno culture, which really comes out of the West, is trying to rise above nature. And I think the epitome of this is I spent my first, I was spent the, the first week of my life in, in Las Vegas for a bachelor party a few few months ago. And time doesn't mean anything. Nature doesn't mean anything. There's like beautiful trees, but they're all fake. And there's blackout curtains everywhere. So it was around the second day and I had no idea what time it is. I had no, and it was just depressing. Even though I was surrounded by some of the best food on earth (laughs) and having a great time with my family, uh, it was just so depressing. And maybe people are used to that now and people enjoy that. But 
something about that just feels like that's what we're heading towards is Vegas all around us, you know? Well, this has been helpful. Uh, freeing us from this slavery to either control time or feel controlled by time. Experiencing time and experiencing it with others and thinking about time as story, these are all help. I, I need to go light a pipe. The pipe is the way that time stands still for me. You know, that's how I that's how I experience time rather than try to control it. So appreciate you guys and the ways that you've helped me to think through time and look forward to having other interactions in the future if you guys are willing to come back and chat about other aspects of how we experience life on this planet and need to broaden that understanding and that experience. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Scott. All right. Until next time.